Hi, this is Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir, our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference. This is part two of our podcast that has an international focus. We've got two special guests, Carmen Burbano from the World Food Program in Rome. The, the World Food Program really exists to to help and be one of the one of the organizations that is uh, eliminating hunger worldwide, and it, it's a it's a big mandate, and it's a it's a very difficult and ambitious mandate. But we like to to say that it's also very achievable. It's actually one of the challenges that humankind is dealing with that is actually uh, quite uh, solvable if we if we could put all the pieces together. And Floyd Cardoz, who has restaurants in New York and in uh, Mumbai. And then you have the poor uh, who live in the shanties all over the country, and they are doing menial jobs, sometimes making maybe $10 a month. The sad part is that all the, all the poor people are the people who are going to, the, to these big cities, thinking that the streets are paved with gold, thinking that they'll all be in Bollywood, thinking they'll get a break and they'll make it big. You know, the population of Mumbai is about 22 million and of which 9 million lives in the slums and shanties in Mumbai itself. There, there are so many people in that one city, and you could go from a beautiful high-rise, and when you go up in a balcony and you look down and you'll see these shanties. We're here to continue the conversation we've been having about chefs, about food, about passion, and about how to make a difference in the world. Carmen, what should we understand about the great work that the World Food Program does? I'm sure there's a range of activities, but for somebody that's new to the World Food Program, what should we know about their priorities and their programs? We focus on on, on two things, I would say. One is um, saving lives, and so in 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 contexts that uh, that are that are very complicated, uh, countries that are dealing with disasters, that are dealing with conflict, that are dealing with emergencies in many many different ways. Uh, one of the first things that happen in those emergencies is uh, lack of food, and 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 people communities need to really have that access to food, especially the most vulnerable, the children, the pregnant, the lactating women, and and people in society uh, that is that are coping with these with these uh, disasters that, that really need to survive. So WFP is uh, the leading organization in responding to those disasters. It's the largest humanitarian organization in the world and the logistics leader of the humanitarian organizations as well. And so whenever there's an emergency, whenever there's a disaster, whenever lives are at risk, WFP is generally one of the first organizations on the ground providing that food, but also providing other types of support to make sure that people can withstand the disaster and and hopefully start to build back their own communities. And then in other contexts that are more stable, but no less complicated in terms of being able to provide the adequate nutrition and food that people need to be able to thrive and to be able to be active participants in the community, WFP really tries to, through its support to different countries, change those lives for the better. 
And so we implement programs such as school feeding, which is what I what I direct and what I specialize in, which is making sure that children in the countries that we support are getting the nutrition they need so they can learn and stay in school. But we also have nutrition support. How do we uh, prevent malnutrition from even happening in the first place? So WFP is very much engaged in the prevention of malnutrition, especially for children that are under five years of age, but also women that are pregnant or, or that just gave birth. And this is very, very important to make sure that we're giving children the best start possible in their life and attacking this cycle of poverty that then comes if, if these issues are not addressed. And then we also focus on communities and how are they producing their own food? Um, what are the farmers doing to be better connected to markets and how WFP can support them in that? Uh, we do a lot of work with smallholder farmers all around the world. A lot of them are women to uh, increase their, their access to information, to credit, to markets, to storage, so that we start to lower little by little the amount of food that's wasted, the amount of uh, production that doesn't get to the market or that doesn't get uh, the the, in, the the farmers don't get the income that they that they could if they had better access to to all of these things. And um, we also work also with communities to support them so that in the next problem and the next disaster, when the next drought hits or the next flood, how can they prevent um, uh, further deterioration of their condition? So we like to talk about that as a resilience activities. How do we make sure that these communities have water facilities or building dams where they're supposed to so that the floods don't affect them as much as they should have last time, etc.? So really about safety nets and how do we build around these communities better systems to protect them from shocks. Carmen, what might be a good example of a community that you've worked in or a good example of the, the change or the transformation that you've seen, whether it came as a result of building a dam or supporting uh, the local farmers? Can you give us a, almost like a picture of how a, uh, a community or an area or a geography changed as a result of some of the World Food Program uh, work? My most recent experience before coming back to Rome to WFP headquarters to take on the leadership of the school feeding division was in Peru. And I, uh, I had, a, I had a, a wonderful experience of two years of working in, in, in the country where WFP was supporting the government to attack very high malnutrition rates and especially anemia rates in children. In some parts of Peru, uh, about 80% of the children under three years of age have anemia. And this is affecting, yeah. And are these in rural rural areas uh, or hard to reach areas? The 80% figure is in hard to reach areas, but nationwide, yep. the figure is very mm -hmm. high. It's around 46%. Wow. And so I would just ask Carmen, what's really the genesis of the uh, the high anemia levels in Peru? And is that distinctive from a lot of other places where you've worked? Anemia is actually one of the most difficult and, and intractable public health problems in developing countries. So it's not exclusive to Peru and it's not exclusive to the Latin America region. A lot of countries are trying to deal with this issue. In Peru, anemia rates, the problem is that anemia rates have not gone down. They have been stubbornly staying there, fixed for about 10 years. They haven't really moved 
despite a lot of efforts from the government and different players. So one of the things that uh, that we've been trying to do is, is really understand what is happening and why are children not getting the food and the, the, nutri- the nutrients that they need to be able to address this problem. And what really comes out from our, from our experience and from our research is, is habits and access. So uh, in, in many countries, in many parts of the country, it's about um, mothers just simply uh, don't having the information that they need to be able to address this in, in the food that they give to their children. And in other, in other parts of the country, it's also access to the food uh, because either families are too poor to have access to some of these uh, rich foods, um, nutrient-rich foods. Uh, but in other parts, the food is is simply not there. Uh, in very rural areas that are very removed from markets and from from towns, uh, the families really have an issue with with the with the diverse diets of their children. Can I ask you a question? Isn't isn't that all over the world though? Because of the way people are eating differently and eating food that is not native to their lands, it's causing these health health issues with kids, because. You know, when I grew up, my family would cook with blood uh, mm-hmm. in a pork stew. But mm-hmm. but now, today, if I go back to Goa, where my family's from, not very many people use blood in that pork stew because people don't think it's cool anymore, because people think that they should be eating things from outside the land. And is that what you've seen in other countries, too? Yeah, in many cases, what we're seeing is a change in, in the general habits and the general way of cooking of the population that is sort of uh, flattening or making making these these recipes more homogenic and, and less uh, uh, and less nutritious. And in, in other parts, for example, what we're seeing also is that uh, more nutritious varieties of foods like um, uh, bananas that are richer in micronutrients, yellow fleshed uh, sweet potatoes, and those sort of things that were that were very much ind- indigenous to many of these countries are getting sort of weeded out in in the in the global uh, markets. And so we're paying for more beautiful but less nutritious apples. We're paying for more beautiful but less nutritious bananas and things. And so people are slowly starting to eat less and less nutritious diets. Uh, Floyd, one of the things I think you've experienced and we've seen over and over again is chefs have a voice, right? They not only can cook, which is important, uh, they can not only be business leaders, but they have a voice. They're listened to. They have a platform. You've obviously, from what you just described, you were doing in India, have been trying to use your voice there as well. But talk about some of the ways that you think about balancing uh, your role as a chef and your role as a community leader. You know, I, I think both the roles are, are tied together because you, you can't just say I'm a chef and not care about the community. And one of the things that I've I've found over the years, and this is, you know, in, in India, is, is Indians loved imports. And I think if you contribute what, what the U.S. did 25, 30 years ago by the chef saying, okay, we're going to cook local seasonal uh things that our farmers grow and not use imports, that changed the way the food was grown in the country. Now, if you're, if you're going to import everything, uh, it's going to make food expensive and people can't afford it. But if you're going to grow things or celebrate ingredients that grow off the land, in that land, and do really well, then it makes it cool. Like if I, as a chef, say, this is cool to eat this ingredient because it's from here and I'm only going to use this ingredient. And if there are bycatch or if there's a green that is grown only in the monsoon or is grown only in this, in this particular time, I'm going to help the community 
I'm going to teach them how to fish rather than feed them fish. And I think we have to look at it in, in, in that way as, as chefs. is like, how do we teach people that everything they eat is cool? And it's not only the asparagus from the United States or the strawberries from France or, or whatever it is that we are importing into India or wherever it is in the world. And once we show them that you can use the grain, like if you use millets in India, millets are cool to eat. You don't need to get quinoa from South America where it's grown and you can eat things in your own country and try making those things cool because then they start setting a message so it helps people earn money who are growing them and then they can use that money to you know continue growing the stuff and just kind of grassroots kind of make it into a big ball that's rolling downhill and, and just collecting things as it goes and makes it cool it, it's not easy trust me because I know what we did in India was like people say oh you can do this and you can cook with this and you won't be able to get this but I've seen what we've done in the United States I've seen how we've succeeded I've seen the small farmers who are growing things that they want to grow and that grow well in that land getting a way to get money on that table getting a way to get more seed getting a way to fish say, with the bycatch instead of just only going for tuna and being able to sustain themselves. I guess if we sustain the community, we sustain the food source. If we sustain the food source, food gets cheaper. Food gets cheaper, more people eat. And as a chef, you have to show that. Carmen, I'd like to uh, for you to tell us a little bit more about uh, school feeding because one of the things that Floyd and uh, his many colleagues around the country who have been part of Share Our Strength have done, have they've enabled us to dramatically increase the number of kids who participate in school meals programs in the U.S. So much of the money that we've raised through cooking events and uh, other types of dinners and and partnerships uh, have been really focused on this idea of making sure that all the kids who get school lunch also get school breakfast if they need it. And in the U.S., the government reimburses 100% of the cost of that, but there's lots of other costs associated to the hardware and to things the school needs. The government reimburses the cost of the meals itself. I'm assuming um, that around the rest of the world, with so many different school feeding programs, there's a range of how it works. It's probably not all the same like it is in the United States. What should we understand about that, and what have you seen to be most effective that we ought to be focused on as we think about growing our international work? The school feeding area, I think, is is as diverse as, as the countries that are implementing them. Because what we what we're seeing globally is that each country, depending on the context, has different models of school feeding that seem to be working or not working, and then they 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 refine the programs as they move forward. But one of the things that's remarkable, I think, from our side is that almost every country in the world is trying, in one way or another, to feed its school children. Some. Are, can't do it because of lack of, of, of resources. In, in the U.S., as you were saying, the government reimburses 100% of the cost to those children that, that are deemed eligible for, for the school lunch. In, in many countries, governments really don't have the budgets to sustain a large program like that. Even though it is an investment, it's still something that has to come out of the national budget. And in many cases, the economies just can't afford it. So um, you see programs that are supported by uh, organizations like the United Nations, like the World Food Program, NGOs, communities, church groups, etc., they all sort of come together to uh, 
to support in in many countries that are that are still struggling to get uh, the capacity to to really have a large scale national program, but. In, in in many, many countries, we see very good uh, practices. Uh, Nigeria has a large program. South Africa, I mentioned Brazil. Most of Latin America is covering pretty much all the children in schools with school feeding. And as I was saying, I think we have we have a few of the best practices that we can consider across the board. One is countries that are really committed to better regulations in terms of what the children are eating in school and making sure that they're eating foods that are fresh, that are less processed, that have less contents of sugar, less contents of salt and and, and fat, and, and that are really sustaining them in a, in a very healthy way. So we see movements in, in different parts of the world to ref, reform these programs, to make them healthier and ensure that children are eating what they're supposed to be eating. The other one is the, this connection to local purchase. And and the, the programs can have an enormous impact on on smallholder farmers and and the communities that they that they that they support, uh, so this is another very important aspect of the programs because they also make them more sustainable. Uh, we are seeing also very good integration of these programs into, for example, curric- the curriculum in school. How do we use the meals and school gardens, for example, as teaching opportunities for children on how to eat better and where food comes from and wh- how important it is? So working with ministries of education to integrate food and food habits and food education in education curricula and, and what children are, t- are getting taught in schools is important. And then the other aspect also in we see in, in a lot of developing countries is um, how does school feeding also provide an opportunity to, for example, um, fortify the food with iron for in areas that have high anemia rates. Uh, in certain countries also we are providing what is called supplementation, which is iron pills or um, pills that have specific micronutrients to reach children that are having these deficiencies in different countries. So you can enrich the program to attack certain problems that are affecting children in that specific country. And programs that are designed to address the problem specifically are some of the best um, are some of the best examples. And the last bit that I would say is programs that really pay attention to what is impeding girls to have access to school and to actually stay in school is is something that we're very much interested in and looking at and supporting governments with. Girls in many contexts have specific barriers. They are pulled out of school earlier than boys. They are expected to stay to stay home and take care of their siblings. They are expected to go out and find work when they when they grow a little bit older. And we see lots of girls dropping out of school earlier and as a consequence they get married earlier, they have children earlier and then we start a whole cycle of of poverty and malnutrition. So uh, really keeping kids, but specifically girls in school, can really be the key to unlocking um, uh, potential, but also stopping the cycle of poverty and hunger. And school feeding programs, different incentives to keep girls in school, and certainly one of the areas that governments are working on. Well, uh, Carmen, I'm uh, trying to talk Floyd, uh, who has never said no to us, so I'm assuming we've got a good track record, into helping us think more about how we engage other chefs around the world in our work outside of uh, the U.S. And uh, as we do, we're going to be looking to you as a resource for 
how we um, spend those funds that we raise because uh, you're obviously very much aligned with what we're trying to do on school meals. What, I, what I'd love to do, Floyd, uh, because our work depends on a vibrant uh, food scene both in the U.S. and around the world, um, I want to take advantage of the fact that you know India's food scene, and I'm sure it's impossible to generalize because we've already talked about how massive India is as a nation. Uh, but give us a description of it. What should we know about uh, the culinary uh, scene in India? Uh, the Indian Indian culinary scene today is vastly different from what it was five years ago, and it's 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 changing daily. It's and it's changing so fast. Um, there are very many restaurants. There are very many talented chefs. Uh, there are chefs who've been educated abroad who come back and you know come back to India. Uh, the business in India is not as hard as it is in the United States. Let's say that. Uh, but that being said, there are its own challenges. Um, and, and I think trying to engage a few of, you know, the restauranters in India have more say than the chefs themselves. Restaurant yeah, owners yeah. do. Mm-hmm. In some places, the chefs are the owners. and So the chefs are not celebrities yet like they are? Oh, here, there are. Or, there, or they are? There are many celebrities. They have, uh, most of the chefs in India have way more Instagram followers than chefs in the United States. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, they are very into social media. So. That's our measure now. So, <laughs> Instagram so, so yeah. So I, I I think the way to uh, to look at that is through Instagram because a lot of people do yeah. follow yeah. that, and and I think looking at it at one one city at a time is like let's engage first the big cities and then move them across because that's where most of the knowledge and most of the wealth is, and and getting those those chefs in those cities is like let's engage them and I'm sure there are many chefs who want to do it, but they just don't know how. And, and we've been hearing, uh, I've heard at least, uh, of you know what you might think of as destination restaurants in, in Copenhagen or in Spain. Uh, if you had to pick one other than your own, if, if, we, if we just can't get anywhere near the Bombay Canteen uh, because of the crowds, where would you send us as a destination restaurant in India? I, I think Bombay has the best restaurants in the country, though I think Indian accent in Delhi is pretty good too. Uh, our two restaurants, in, I have two in Bombay and both are chefs who train in the United States and who believe in the food in India. So, you know, both Chef Thomas and Chef Hussain at Opedron and, and the Bombay Canteen love what they do. But I, I'd say there are many places to visit in India, very many places to India, and I'm hoping to take some people to India to see that because the food there is, is not chicken tikka masala. It's it's right. more than that. It's, right. it's, it's you know, grain and, and vegetables and it's plant-based and there is some protein, animal protein in there. But there is there are chefs who are doing good things, you know. Uh, there is a chef in Bombay who's cooking only on on natural wood. Uh, there's no gas in the kitchen, and she's what, what restaurant's that? Called Art, which has meaning, which means meaning. But she does uh, an incredible job of utilizing ancient fuel sources of cooking food and finding dishes that are made on these fuel sources, which is incredible. I had a meal at the last trip, and was very impressed with what she did. Fascinating. And she's she's doing food from you know, from the smaller places all over the country where they cook at home on, on, earth, on, on wood on wood and charcoal. So those are things to see. There are chefs who are going, you know, foraging in the mountains and using morels from the Himalayas. Who knew there were morels in India? I mean, we did, but in the world, nobody right. knew that. Right. Right. And then at, at one of our restaurants, we use something called Moras Bhaji, uh, where our chef Thomas went and found these greens that are available year-round in the swamps. Uh, and nobody knew about them. 
and it's got this incredible salty acidic flavor to it that you can use in a bunch of things but kind of looking at that and the other thing that we can learn from from india which a lot of chefs here know is that at home they utilize everything they waste nothing uh and that's that's a culture that a lot of chefs are embracing more and more in india and trying to engage them to spread that wealth spread that uh, you know share that strength with everybody would make i think an opportunity you know even in else elsewhere in the world like you know in in nigeria and in the sudan and places that where they don't have uh, a way to bring that focus because chefs do have a voice now and yes with netflix and yes with all these shows it's it's making us superstars uh and we still care about what we do no matter which show we are on we care about what we do and we care about feeding and care about keeping people happy with things that make sense well i've got to schedule my indian trip on one of the for the the times when you're over there for 10 12 days because it's just fascinating and it just feels like there's a whole world to be learned about so um thank you for being with us and carmen uh, you must have a go-to restaurant in rome that we should all know about <laughs> i have many uh you know rome is a uh, Rome is a, a fantastic place to eat. Pasta alla carbonara is one of the Roman specialties uh, here, and it's basically, pa- it's very simple. It's pasta with egg, uh, parmigiano, and uh, bacon or guanciale, it's called here, which is a specific part of the of the pig. <laughs> but it's a, it's a fantastic, uh, very hearty, meaty, um, wonderful soul food. You can actually get guanciale in the United States, too. It's a pork, ah, pork cheeks. Yeah, yeah, pork cheeks. Uh, was so is there uh, is there a restaurant that you feel like you know maybe is a hidden gem that we should know about? Well, for I think my favorite restaurant around and to take people is a restaurant called Pierluigi in Piazza de Ricci here in Rome for seafood and seafood pasta. It's fantastic. That sounds pretty amazing. Um, well, I hope we get to taste all of it, and I hope mm. we get to continue to do this good work together. Uh, you, both of you are such important resources for. Um, for this anti-hunger work and this notion of investing in kids, uh, which is where we have the biggest opportunity to make a difference in our world. So uh, Floyd Cardoz, uh, for those of you who can't get to India, but you're in New York or in the United States, the Bombay Bread Bar uh, is a must. I haven't been there yet. I've heard so many great things about it. Congratulations on it. And thanks for being with us. And Carbon Burbano, thank you so much. The work you've done in the World Food Program, it's pioneering work in terms of investing in school feeding, and we hope to continue to learn from you. So thank you for being with us as well. Thank you so much. A pleasure. I'm Billy Shore. I'm proud to have each of you on our first international edition of Add Passion and Stir. Thank you. <laughs>